We are given one life, full of billions of small and large decisions, to be somebody, to change, to be kind, to give hope, to become a better person, and to leave a lasting impact on this planet. It is a decision to be made every single day while your heart is still beating. We've made our decision. Absence of clothing. Atheist and science-based apparel and merchandise. Donating 50% of our profits to charity. Look good and feel good, without God. Check us out at absenceofclothing.com and find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest for discount codes and other sweet swag. Speaking of discount codes and sweet swag, why don't you head on over to absenceofclothing.com, type in the promo code EVILTWINS, and you will get 10% off. Not only will you get 10% off, but you're going to do something good for the world. Please give back, people. Hey, Brad. What's up? Do you like beer? It's all right. Why don't you take a little swig of this, my friend? What's this? That's Sunday's Coals from Old Town Brewing here in Portland. Damn, that's good. Crisp, sweet, just like summertime, my friend. And you like summertime, don't you? Love it. Do you like beer now? Yes. Would you like more? Yes. Well, to find out more about Old Town Brewing, go to otbrewing.com. And they have lots of information about their amazing company and ways to get a hold of them. Cool. Check it out. otbrewing.com, baby. The information contained in this podcast is for entertainment use only. Please don't take a single word these two assholes say seriously. I'm Thad. I'm Brad. And we are the Evil Twin Podcast. Well, what's the goal here? To continue making as much money as they can for as long as they can before they get busted. First of all, props to you for knowing about the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Yeah. So I'm beyond third grade? Wait. <laughs> We're, we're saying first-year graduate school here. Like, that was, that was impressive, yeah. Some of the most compelling theories of personal identity rooted essentially in your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, your experiences, your memories. That's, that's essentially who you are. That's all you are. You know, they had the LSD experience in the 60s and the 70s, which I call the tail end of. That was amazing. Then there was the ecstasy coming through, the rave scene, and I was involved with that, and that was amazing. And then it seemed to go very cold. And then the most unexpected to me but delightful, this emergence of ayahuasca. In understanding the self, or in creating an image of the self, we also create an image of the other or the not-self simultaneously. So we, we create subject and object in the same moment. But really, this teaches us that we create our own environments, that we gravitate toward those things in our environments that please us based on who we are genetically speaking. Welcome, Welcome to the Evil Twin. Just as sure as you're listening to me, just as sure as you're listening to an eight-year-old voice, just as sure as you're playing a record, it's just as sure that you're going to go to hell if you're not saved. I stand firm in my belief that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the the Word of God. It is. Marjo said so. <laughs> hey, guys. Um, we're here to talk about um, a couple things today. Going to have a fun time. We're going to call an Academy Award winning movie producer, documentarian, mm-hmm. director, director, mm-hmm. and talk to her about her beautiful movie named Marjo. You've probably never heard of it. Yep. 
um, if you're listening to this, or maybe you have. Maybe you have. The, the odds you, are low. If you haven't, you should go look it up. Yeah, it's almost like just stop the recording right now. <laughs> go uh, find Marjo online somewhere. Yeah. Not that hard to find. Yeah. Uh, watch it, and then come back and then listen to this podcast. <laughs> It'll actually help you if you do that. Yeah, I mean, it, having having a little bit of background, a little bit of information about what the movie is would, would be helpful um, in listening to this episode. But... Um, if you don't want to go watch it all, let's just talk about it a little bit and yeah. give, give the listener a little bit of a background on, on what the movie's about. Okay, so Marjo, you introduced me to this movie several years ago, mm-hmm. and I watched it. And I'd kind of forgotten that I'd even seen it until we started planning for this um, conversation. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered, oh shit, I, I remember this movie. It was good. Yeah. It was a documentary made in, what, 1972. And about this basically this child mm-hmm. um, that at age of the age of four was basically put out to the world as the youngest uh, traveling evangelist on mm-hmm. the planet and had this amazing ability to captivate audiences. And he could just like preach like nobody's business yep. and became kind of famous in that era. Yep. Right? And at least in that neck of the woods, I don't know how famous he actually was. Right. Right. <laughs> but, um, so that's how the movie starts. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of reveals who Marjo is today. Mm-hmm. And it picks up on the story about this guy who basically um, is traveling around as a preacher today, still, except for one kind of minor difference. Go ahead. He doesn't <laughs> believe this shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he knows what he's doing is, um, you know, more of a form of entertainment and, uh, and and everything like that but he's he's continuing to do it because that's what he knows that's how that's how what he knows that's how he knows to make money um that's how he was raised and he knew that he could do it and he could make money doing that and so when when we see him as an adult about like 10 minutes into the movie you don't even see him for the, for a while as as an adult um he's a person who uh he feels bad in a certain sense. Yeah. He kind of sees himself as sort of a bad person. Yeah. But he's really not. And the, and as you watch the movie, you realize like, oh, it's just he was raised by some fucked up people. Yeah. In a way that caused him to be a little bit fucked up. A little bit. But um, but he's a good person on the inside, and you can tell that by watching the movie. Yeah. But he's a con man, and he's he's expert at it. Yeah. So well, if you think about how like like you've said to me. Uh, recently about how by the age of eight, you're just, you're already who you are. Mm-hmm. You, you're you as, yeah. as far as personality goes. Yeah. You're, I mean, as far as kind of developmentally, you're developmentally, set. you're, you're pretty much set that you are who you are. Now you're going to react to the world depending on um, mm-hmm. that. That's going to largely play a role in the rest of your life. There's right. almost nothing you can do about it. You know, there's certain things you can do for self-help and things like that. But all in all, you're still going to be you, kind of who you believe you are. Because by the time you're eight, you you almost remember you, very little of your development. Mm-hmm. You know? By the time you're three, think about that. Yeah, you don't. You're not going to remember much before yeah. that. And so we're picking up on the storyline of this kid who's four years old. Dude. Right. That's like nine months older than my kid right now. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, like, just the thought of him going out and like preaching and <laughs> stuff like that is so bizarre. Well, all the footage that you see of him as a kid. You know, with yeah. his curly red hair and yeah. he's got this white suit and he's got, you know, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, he's like eight years old, which is the age of my kid right now, which yeah, trips me out, you know, because this kid, he was good at yeah. what he was doing. And, you know, obviously you can tell after you watch the movie, you can tell like 
it was just ingrained in him and yeah. he sort of had to be good. Yeah. Um, he was supporting his family yeah. with these skills, but uh, he was good at it and he continued to be good at it. And as an adult, he was looking for a way to, to get out of it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then that's where the, the movie, you kind of find him winding down his preaching career, doing and, his last few, um, you know, tent revivals. And kind of dealing with some guilt, yeah. but only kind of really at this point. I think he's kind of, it seemed like he had gotten beyond a little bit of like feeling guilty about all this stuff at this point. Yeah. But um, you he was more it, just looking for a way out. Yeah. But you could tell that his mom just fucked him up. Yeah. Man. And um, it's going to be interesting uh, to talk to Sarah to yeah. find out what he's if she still talks to him to find out what he's like now. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, I'm interested in that too. I couldn't find any information about him online. I looked, um, I couldn't find anything, and that's rare these days. You yeah, know, he's still alive, but yeah. I can't find any way to contact him. Yeah, and I've been able to just in the terms of doing this podcast. Yeah, I've been able to make contact with and and get people to agree to interviews who are you know people like Sarah. She's yeah. an Academy Award winner, but you can contact her. Yeah, you know, but you, I can't figure out a way Find to contact nothing. Marjo. So, yeah. and then maybe he doesn't want to be contacted. Probably doesn't. So. Well, the thing that I think is interesting about this movie is it does tie into our podcast and that it's, it's kind of about belief in a certain way. It's about a kid who probably believed this shit, right? Mm-hmm. As a little kid, I'm sure like your parents tell you something, you, you pretty much just believe it. Yep. And then at told. some point he stopped believing it and still decided to go on and preach the same message that he didn't believe anymore to people that still believed it, right? which increased their belief even more because he was so good because he was so good at it. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's a great movie. Um, and so I think I should just do a little bit of introduction okay, to yeah, Sarah and then, uh, we'll go on to the phone call. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to go off of her Wikipedia page, Wikipedia okay. article. Cause that's, you know, the most condensed version of, of bios that I can generally find. We'll just hope it's correct. We'll just, yeah. We'll hope it's correct. <laughs> um, she was born, uh, in New York city. Um, her parents were, I think, relatively, relatively successful people. Um, she graduated from Rosemary hall, uh, where she was a classmate of Glenn close. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. In uh, 1968, she graduated from Sarah Lawrence College, and then she worked as a ghostwriter for The Village Voice Hmm. for about a year. So she was a writer at first, Um, and then she got into filmmaking, and she produced this film, Marjo, Mm -hmm. which was her first documentary. And I think she was uh, like, I don't know, 25, 26, something like that, and they won an Academy Award for, for for this film. Um, it's an amazing film. Um, then she went on to do some writing and continued to work in film um, and eventually produced another film where she won an, another Academy Award. Um, it's another documentary called Thoth, okay. following the life of a uh, street, she only street do performer. Document- oh, uh, street performer? Yeah. 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 And no, she doesn't do documentaries um, only, exclusively, okay. but her two Academy Awards are for documentaries. Interesting. So, yeah, that is pretty interesting. And she has a new movie um, that's just being released right now, actually, um, called Learning to Drive. Um, and it's starring Ben Kingsley and Patricia Clarkson. So it's. Wow. It's. You know, heavy hitters. Yeah, it's probably going to be a good movie. It's about a uh, uh, a person in New York who's learning to drive from uh, from a Sikh 
some Sikh guy. Uh, I don't know cool. that much about it, but uh, let's talk to her about it and get yeah. some more information. But uh, no, we're looking forward to to talking to her. She's uh, you know a couple Academy Awards. You can't uh, get yeah. a, a bigger guest Pretty than that. Credentials. So we're we're very uh, excited to talk to her. So let's get on with it. Bring her on. Hello there. It is I, the Oracle. I'm pleased to announce the formation of a new spiritual community known only as VAST. The mission of VAST is simple. We want to make getting married easy, special, and amazing. Our easy online ordination process will have you officiating a wedding in no time. Do you have other options? Sure. Can you get ordained on other websites? Absolutely. But why would you wanna? Fast has everything you would want at the most affordable price. Free. The troops are gathering. The mechanism is in place. The bell will ring shortly. So head over to vast.church and get yourself ordained. Uh, thanks for coming on the, the uh, podcast, Sarah. We appreciate it. Very much my pleasure. So, um, you know, like I said, we, we are, we're twins. We are, our voices sound similar. We're going to be asking you questions, um, but just sort of take it as one voice. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so first thing I wanted to know um, is how did it feel to be the, the first woman to ever wear a tux on the Academy Awards? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, this was the unisex era. So yeah. um, I knew it was kind of ballsy. Um, but, uh, I had no other choice because I could not afford a gown. And oh. I didn't know anything about, you know, going to designers and getting loners and stuff like that. Uh, I simply didn't have one. We were poor. We weren't, uh, Howard Smith and I weren't even paid to do the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. They did put us up at the Beverly Hills hotel and there was a small per diem, but it would not cover a gown. Hmm. So I looked around and I went in my closet after having the idea of a tux and there was a perfectly good black pantsuit in there. And then I got, I already had some patent leather shoes. Uh, what I lacked was a shirt, which I had made, but as I recall, it cost $30 at the time. And, uh, and I borrowed my dad's black tie and cummerbund. Huh. So there was the outfit and it cost me $30. Well, that's how you be a trendsetter, right? You just go with it. Yeah. What what what's the saying? Necessity is the uh, whatever is the inventor well, of yeah. Well, I kind of liked being in the boys' club, which at that point I very much was. Uh, yeah. You know, films then uh, were extremely. The, the film business was very hostile to women. It, mm. it was just you know, it was an every man's land. You mm. know, it was a no woman's land. Um, you know, so I was an anomaly already for being a female director. Um, Barbara Koppel followed shortly afterwards, uh, winning Academy Awards for, um, two documentaries. Hmm. But, uh, um, you know, I, I also kind of reveled in the unisex era, uh, you know, partly because I felt like I'd invaded, you know, a, a male sanctuary. And partly because I felt very much like a boy. I was kind of built like a boy. I grew up with brothers. Um, 
I, I liked confusing people as to which sex I was. Mm. In fact, uh, Groucho Marx I met, um, oh, wow. who was being uh, accompanied by his beautiful female handler <laughs> at the Oscars. <laughs> and uh, I was introduced to him, and he said, is this a, a boy or a girl? Wow, wow. That's, that, that would be a compliment <laughs> at that point for you. Yeah. So as I understand, you were the first female director to win an Academy Award, though, right? I think technically nobody's ever disputed that, but then again, it's never been very publicized. Mm, um, because it was a documentary category? Yeah, that, that, that's considered a minor category, and if a woman sneaks in, you know, it still doesn't threaten the <laughs> establishment that is making, you know, dramatic features. Hmm. <clears throat> so uh, I don't think it was noticed terribly, and I will say that it probably didn't matter because in the aftermath, um, I was treated as though I was just a cute girlfriend of my partner who was about 11 years older and more established hmm. uh, and was a man. Um, so it was that simple, and that's why I didn't go on to make, you know, make or write movies for quite a while. Um, not until, gosh, uh, the early '80s, huh. um, because there was no point. Wow. So, what did you do before um, you became a filmmaker? I worked for the Village Voice uh, first as a receptionist, and then I began uh, ghostwriting. Um, or just putting into words, uh, my my soon-to-be partner Howard Smith's column, which was called Scenes, um, and and that was the first sort of best bets kind of column, uh, which covered everything hip happening everywhere. Mm. Um, so it was a great a great position to be in. Uh, he grew quite fond of me, and and it was mutual. So we we became boyfriend and girlfriend. And at that point, I quit the Voice because I decided to be a screenwriter, uh, thinking that I could become a success fairly easily because <laughs> it didn't matter whether I was a man or a woman, I would use a male name <laughs> and <laughs> nobody would ever see me anyway, but they would like my script. So I, I quit and wrote a script, uh, which got me an agent. And at that point, my partner says, let's make a movie together. And, uh, and then Marja walked into our lives. Hmm. We had not thought about doing a documentary at all. Uh, we were more concentrating on coming up with treatments and pitches for movies that we wanted to direct together. So Marjo was your, your first documentary ever, right? The first one you were Yes, doing? one of two. I'm oh, okay. not really a documentary filmmaker, right. but, that's, but that's how we wanted to tell the story, because if you presented it as fiction, it would seem too outrageous. Yeah, it's, that's the crazy thing about it. How did you originally meet Marjo? Uh, that was because of Howard's radio show. He he had a, uh, a radio show on uh, what became WPLJ-FM. It was then WABC-FM. And Howard did a lot of interviews with uh, quite famous people, you know, and, and in fact they're available now uh, on iTunes. You know, mm. he, he interviewed John and Yoko and uh, mm. Jim Morrison and uh, Mick Jagger and, um, you know, at the peak of their careers. Uh, and many of whom have died since. So uh, Marjo approached him hoping to get an interview based on um, his unique story uh, and his willingness to tell the truth about what he'd been doing and what that business was like. And he brought along his scrapbook. Um, and uh, Howard uh, took photocopies of the scrapbook and took it home with him 
to show me and said, should we call the Maisels brothers to make this? And, and I said, no, we should make this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that, so, that probably took a lot of guts for you guys just to say, we're going to do no, this it was pure, it was pure naivete. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, we, we thought, you know, uh, you know, someone is going to be excited about this subject matter as we are. Um, there were only a couple of games in town for, for, that would finance documentaries, let alone distribute them, um, because they really were not in theaters at all. They were, you know, mostly done for TV or in industrials. Um, but Howard had a very good connection to the one place that probably would be interested, and that was the distributor Donald Rugoff, who had made his name uh, distributing Endless Summer, mm. Uh, and uh, I think Salesman. I, I'm, he, he did the earlier early documentaries, and he had a string of art houses, and he promoted them very well, and he kind of owed Howard one. Plus, he had just formed a production company with um, a billionaire named Max Pilevsky. Uh, Max would finance the films, and Don, and Don would distribute them. Uh, and th- it was just... You know, spanking new when we went in and pitched the story, uh, and they bought it. Yeah, I tried to put myself in the position of somebody like in that time arrow as I watched that film, and I have to think to myself like that must have been really uh, not only controversial but kind of groundbreaking to have this guy that was willing to kind of expose himself. Because I'm sure people were talking about, oh, there there are these preachers out there that aren't even real and blah, blah, blah. But this had to have been one of the first times that somebody actually said, I'm, I'm willing to show it, you know. You know, nobody talked about that aspect. Oh, really? Nobody cared. Nobody cared. That was just some funny thing, you know, some fringe thing, you know. But uh, Salesman, the Maisel's documentary, was about a Bible salesman. So, okay. you, know, the, you know, the interest had been peaked, but there wasn't an, you know, a a great curiosity out there. What what attracted Don and Max to the project was Marjorie himself and mm. his story, which is what attracted me to it. If not for the early childhood footage and his scrapbook, I would not have been interested. Mm. It, it because he's not sympathetic. You know, it's 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 like, oh, we're not going to make a, a money, you know, a movie about a total crook. Right. Uh, you know why? It's a bummer. So um, it. It's it's the reason why I decided to open the movie, and I cut this part myself, with 10 minutes of never seeing Marjo as an adult, Mm. but only the footage from his childhood. And once that's done, you know that he was abused, you know. I mean, it's funny and it's fun, but it's also uh, horrific that this was done to a child. Uh, to parade around the Bible Belt, uh, posing as someone who was getting, you know, a little kid who was getting his sermons directly from God, mm-hmm. when in fact he had been rehearsed, not at gunpoint exactly, but he was the supporter of the family. Yeah. Um, so he had to do his thing. Um, so anyone seeing that footage would automatically feel sympathy for our character, mm-hmm. because um, they know why he is the way he is. Uh, and, uh, in, in fact, when Max first heard my pitch, he turned to Marjo, who was present and, and said, so you're getting even with your parents, are you? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> what was his response? 
uh, he, he uh, you know, he didn't know what to say, so he just <laughs> grinned sheepishly. But, you know, it, it, it really wasn't why he was doing it. He right. was doing it to get famous so, so that he could become, you know, an actor or a rock star. That was mm, his dream. Yeah. Uh, one of, that was one of the things that really drew me into the movie, this, those first few minutes where you see him as a, as a child. And uh, it made me wonder if he was, was he exceptionally gifted as a child? Was that your sense? Or was he just really well rehearsed? He was a great mimic. Huh. And he had an amazing memory. And he loved to perform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that now, was obvious. <laughs> you know, no, but, a, you know, he's not the only kid in the world who has that ability you know, there are some kids who are just born to the stage or born to the limelight, you know, but they don't end up doing what he did, which was running a total scam on behalf of his parents. Right. Hmm. Which is really worse than being made to do that at, at gunpoint. You know what I mean? If your yeah, parents are saying point of love instead. Yeah. If your parents are saying, do this for the family, do this for us. You know. Well, also, the, you know, another you know, motive was because he was one of three children and he got all the attention. Hmm. And was, that was the way he did it. Was he the oldest, or where did he fit? He, in the, he was the oldest, yes. Huh. He had a younger brother named Verno, and a younger sister. The youngest was, was his sister, Starlo. <laughs> so it's Marjo, Verno, and Starlo. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they were saddled with those names, you know, <laughs> just to, you know, I think probably the, in fact, I know that the parents had in mind for Verno to do the same thing. As Marjo aged, um, they knew they were going to have to prolong the gimmick of a kid preaching, so they began to try to teach Ferno. But he did not have any talent, whatever, at it, and was a very, very miserable kid. Oh, boy. Um, you know, always being held up to Marjo and, you know, mm. why can't you do what he did and feeling like a loser and unloved. And So I, I don't know anything about Starlo. Um, Evidently, she did not want to be talked about. Yeah. So was he already planning on getting out of his preaching scheme before he talked to you guys? Was this sort of like a long-term plan of his? Marjo says in the film, uh, can God deliver a religion addict? Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great line. Uh, So the fact was that he had tried many times to give it up. um, But always the... You know, it, preaching was what he was good at, mm-hmm. um, and also he needed money. And it was a very quick way to make money, and he did it half the year. So six months out of the year, he would uh, disguise himself <laughs> as a holy roller, oh. run around all the churches, get plenty of money in, in, in the form of offerings. And then for the remaining six months, he'd hang out with his friends in Venice, California, and smoke dope. So he was he sort of had a preaching season. Yeah, and and I think it also was like a, a real icebreaker in getting to know other people in his real life, you know, especially to uh I I don't all the women I ever knew that he dated said that the very first night he would trot out that scrapbook. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That would be hard not to. That's like showing a woman like uh like your little puppy or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, what was he like to hang out with? I mean, did, did you hang out with him much out, like off camera or? Um, no, we did not. I mean, at, at first we were we were friendly, although he, you know, he was he was somewhat suspicious that, well, quite you know, justifiably, that we were going to screw everything up. 
And that would be his one shot because he basically sold his life rights for this movie, uh, or at least for film. Um, And we were amateurs, you know, and, you know, sometimes it didn't seem like we knew what we were doing because he never, in those days, you couldn't immediately, you know, go and see the footage. Um, We were, we were in the field, so there was no such thing as going to see the rushes that night. Uh, so we never saw what we were doing, uh, what the cameraman had gotten until we got back to New York, uh, you know, some weeks later. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was kind of do or die. I love that scene in the hotel where he's kind of coaching you guys and getting you ready to actually be around these, uh, Pentecostal, these Pentecostal (laughs) conservatives. Yeah. That was my idea because first of all, the, the crew members, needed to know what they could not and could do, that this was a special assignment. It wasn't, most of them came from the world of Woodstock. They'd all worked on Woodstock in sound and camera and editing. So, um, uh, you know, that's a milieu that they were very comfortable in, but the idea of having to cut their hair and say, uh, you know, hello, brother, so-and-so, and you know, and not smoking and... and, Not hitting um, on the girls. And and not hitting on the girls. You know, (laughs) all of that they had to be taught, but I thought it would be a lot of fun if Marjo was the one to teach them on camera. Yeah. Were you guys nervous the first time you went into a church and had to actually film one of these scenes, or what were the nerves like? Yeah, Howard and I went to Des Moines with Marjo uh, to see what it was like. And I cannot remember if that was before or after we raised the money. Uh, you know, so, so that was, I was very nervous for that. Um, you know, because it was our first time where Marjo introduced us and say they were born again Christians. You know, we weren't lying exactly. Uh, you, you know, because to... nobody ever asked us. They, they assumed because we were with Marjo that we were. Hmm. Um, but we had to dress the part, and Howard in particular was nervous because he was Jewish. Oh, okay. Did he stand? Which was really anathema yeah. <laughs> to those people then. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Did they even notice? If they didn't know what a Jew looks like in right. New York, you'd know right away. <laughs> right. You know, he, he looks Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they had found out, they would have tried to... Um, to proselytize, you know, mm. because that would have been a huge get. Oh them, yeah, oh yeah. To convert a Jew, definitely. One of the things when I when I watch the film, one of the things that really stands out to me, especially towards the beginning, is the color. Um, there's a lot of red. The, the all the reds in the 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 video of him as a child, and then at that first um, sermon, the carpet is like this bright red. Um, was any of that, was that decision-making, creative decision-making on your part, or was it happy accidents when it comes to that? Well, if you look at films from the 50s, you know, I mean, Kodak is developing their, um, you know, de- not developing in terms of the lab, but they are constantly trying to improve negative but that when you see um, an old movie, you'll find that the especially women's lipsticks that you know that that the mouths are intensely red yeah. and the blues are intensely blue, to the expense of flesh tones. Um, mm. So when we shot, uh, we made the decision not to shoot on positive film. We wanted to shoot on negative. And positive was used in documentaries because it was hardier. 
Uh, I don't know if anything, any of this is of interest to you. Really, <laughs> oh, but, yeah, totally. But, you know, but it, it was grainy and a bit faded. Huh. Uh, but it was, it was a good risk, um, you know, because it was so easy for something to happen to film in the camera, uh, you know, whether it got scratched or, um, you know, light got on it. It, it. it wasn't so much of a problem if light got on it. Uh, you know, it, it was just sturdier. Um, but our uh, cameraman wanted to use negative uh, because the colors were going to be richer. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, negative was very soft stock, and it was so easy to. It was really our hearts were in our mouths every time we went back to New York and mm. saw the the footage. Um, uh, because so much could have gone wrong, but yeah. the the camera opera- operators and their assistants were super super careful uh, of first of all not getting light on it. I mean, you would change a reel inside of a bag, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and and the cameraman would be ra- you know waiting uh, because they needed to shoot these events continuously, which oh. is why we used more than one cameraman so that there was you know overlap. Yeah, you could time. cut from one to the other, and there was no break. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, that's that's why the colors are very vibrant. Yeah, I thought that the color of that movie just like brought me right back to yeah. my early childhood back in the seventies. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, not not only the style that everybody had, but also just the colors. They were yeah. just very mm-hmm. like, earthy, and they really stand up. I mean, even to this day, it has its own style. That yeah, the, the, for sure, the movie has yeah. its own style. One of the things I noticed in the documentary was that, you know, his dad seemed to be around. You know, he introduced him at, at one of the uh, the sermons that he did. But I didn't really see his his mom or didn't notice if his mom was around. Was she around in the later part of his life? or? Oh, yeah. And in, in fact, uh, she lived, I, I don't know how long she lived, but um, it had to be a, a, a ripe old age because Marge's nephew contacted me in, in like 2005 or something. You'd become an atheist because he'd been raised by her, oh, wow. uh, by his grandmother. Um, and she was uh, a, a real tiger lady. Mean old lady. Um, yeah, as an old lady. Yeah, she, she was hell. So she never so, learned her life lessons then, basically. Oh, no, 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 no. She was <laughs> extremely forceful. Uh, and... Um, you know, hidebound in her ways and, you know, abusive. So, uh, and um, spectacular looking woman. She looked like a blonde Maureen O'Hara. Mm, huh. uh, so she was not around, but in order for us to use the old footage of her, which was key, uh, Marjo had to go down to Florida where she was living. I believe that's where she was living. That's certainly where she ended up. Um, and, and talk her into signing a release, mm. which meant he had to lie, you know, big time to her. What did he uh, say? Do you I, remember? And I think he was frightened. No, uh, I think he was, he may have threatened her. Mm. Oh, wow. I, I really don't know. Um, but I know that he was very nervous about it and that he came back and wouldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But we got that release. <laughs> so was he closer uh, to his and, dad? Yeah, but I mean, nobody had any idea what he was going to say in it. She right. probably balked at doing it, you know, not knowing that, in fact, he was going to blow the lid off the business, but simply not wanting to be in it. Uh, and at that point, he may have threatened her, then I'm going to expose you. And then he did anyway. <laughs> wow. 
Um, so I take it he wasn't father, too close to her at this point. <laughs> well, the, well, the father, uh, you know, while we were filming, uh, popped up in, in Anaheim where, uh, and uh, uh, eagerly agreed. Uh, it was a surprise to us. Hmm. Uh, we were thrilled, um, although he was not forthcoming in the least. Uh, he, he, you know, he didn't want to sit down for an interview, but he was happy to stand up and be interviewed in the tent. Hmm. Uh, and he did, you know, get up and pre- preach before Marjo. He introduced him. Um, and I think Marjo was surprised, too. We asked him, you know, I'll just, you know, just try, just try to get a release out of him. But it, it wasn't very hard at all. His father, you know, loved the fact that Marjo was maybe might be a success again, and that might rub off on him. And he was, uh, you know, quite proud. Did, did his father know anything about the film at no, all? No, 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 no. He, he knew that someone was making a film about Marjo, but he never dreamed, oh, okay. you know, that it was going to be an expose. Hmm. Yeah, he seemed pretty proud of him. He seemed proud of his son. Yep. Now, <laughs> you, you had you had, <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the film, he had mentioned this uh, woman that he had lived with um, mm-hmm. after he moved away from home for a short period of time or whatever. Um, what happened to that relationship? With Agnes, the uh, African-American. Oh, is that, who, is that who he was talking about? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, you, I, that was his girlfriend in the movie. Yeah, yeah, at the end. Uh, the woman that he moved in with. Yes. To be utterly frank, we could not get the whole story out oh, okay. of him, although we have our suspicions of there being a kind of menage in this okay. house. You know, oh, okay. it was her, her and her husband who uh, paid for his education and um, and kind of were, were a foster family for okay. him. Um, we did meet them, nice enough people, um, but it, it was just a vibe we got. Yeah. You know, that, that the, you know, because he was a stranger to them and they kind of adopted him probably out of sympathy for his play because he was, you know, basically homeless. Yeah. Um, but I, I think he's saying for his supper and that is just a guess. The reason why we did not press him for that was Marja was extremely paranoid uh, about what we were going to do with what he said mm. um, and not wanting to hurt people either or get in trouble so he he did not want to go into detail and he would just stonewall you if you tried and would get even more um, um, difficult to deal with you know he he would be even less forthcoming if we pressed him i would imagine Uh, his his dishonesty um like made him not necessarily trustworthy of other people as well, just because he knew how dishonest he was. Oh, you, you know? bet. That's, that's a very good observation. And that's exactly why he, he, he seemed to be missing something like something had been shut off in mm-hmm. that, in that childhood. You know, uh, there was a kind of glaze over him that you couldn't get past, you know? So if, if you got a story, it was going to be the story that he told everyone. Mm. And we decided after a time, you know, when, when, when interviews seemed to become more difficult when he, he was, you know, up in arms, we decided what's the point anyway, we, we've got a hell of a story anyway. Yeah. Um, and, 
you know, it, 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 it won't help our relationship with him, which is already very dicey. Yeah. And the point of the story is, the, you know, this this guy who's going around and kind of swindling people out of money based on this kind of false pretense, not not well, all it, the other it stuff. It speaks for itself, yeah. you know. I mean, and he was quite admit, willing to admit, you know, that he was a phony. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want people to hate him either. Well, yeah, I think that kind of made him endearing, you know. Was his uh, well, it's what he says in the movie, I think I'm bad but not evil, which right. became the title of the one rock and roll album that he did make. Hmm. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> which was called Bad But Not Evil, and he was uh, singing on it. Um, but it did not give him the career that he wanted in music, uh, so he turned to acting, and there he he was able to get roles. He was very much embraced by Hollywood after the film came out. Oh, he was. Everyone wanted to meet him. Everyone thought he was charming and brave, you know, which he was. Yeah. Um, and everyone wanted him at their dinner table or at their parties, and because he was extremely attractive and extremely entertaining, and mm. you know could. Uh, you know, tell stories that would have everyone's mouth all open. Oh, I bet. So he was a lot of fun. Um, so I think based on his uh, 15 minutes of notoriety, he did um, get a foothold in the acting business, but never re- it never really grew. Um, I, I think he was considered pretty limited um, mm-hmm. in, in terms, you know, they they mostly gave him parts of preachers or psychopaths. Yeah. And and that was, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of variety in between. Um, you know, it, it, he actually did some charming work uh, in a few B-movies, but they were B-movies, you know, and very few people have ever seen them. So he gave that up, and I know you want to ask what became of him. I know that because everyone wants to know. Oh, yeah. I do, but, but I have one question before that real quick. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, um. As as I said, as I was watching the movie, I try to put myself in the kind of mindset of kind of the early 70s and kind of the mindset of the people of, of, of that culture and that era. And um, when you introduce the character of Agnes to the uh, mm-hmm. story, um, mm-hmm. it, you didn't go into like any detail. You just kind of introduced this character. But I was wondering if um, part of the, how controversial that was in, in that time period when this guy was kind of dating this African-American woman. Um, mm-hmm. Was that even a thing, or was that um, was, was that on purpose? Or she was present at one location that I remember in Detroit. That was the church, the the African American church with the white preacher. the The woman preacher was dressed as a nurse. Oh yeah. yeah uh-huh. um, she was there for that, and I think that was because they would accept it because they were black and white themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I don't recall her being at the other ones. No, I'm wrong. She was at one of the ones in Texas. But, uh, you know, he kept it hidden that that was his girlfriend. She was just on the crew. Wow. Um, I, don't, I don't know how racist they were, um, because we did see black faces in some of the congregations in, in Texas. Uh, and nobody, it didn't seem to bother anybody um, so, but, but the fact that he, it was his girlfriend, I don't think would have gone over and he, he did go to some lengths to, to hide it. Hmm. 
Okay. Well, one of the things that I did notice about Marjo, which is he ha- he did have this this ability to kind of go back and forth between these white congregations and this black congregation, and he just fit in in, in front of the the crowd like they just mm-hmm. accepted him, and he had this ability to sort of court both of these these crowds and kind of work them in his own way. And there was a definite difference between him and, for instance, some of the other white preachers. Like they couldn't have crossed over in the same way that he did and he, he was seemed very uh, not talented. true actually not true that church was um you know was a a standard station in the white preachers oh, tours okay because the pre because the 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 minister was white uh she booked them um, oh that was her location her uh congregation. yeah oh, okay oh yeah 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 that, that was her church she did very well at it too uh and she was clearly gay because the assistant pastor um, looked like Dusty Springfield or something. <laughs> they were clearly an item. <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, and, and the congregation adored her. Um, but I think that they didn't mind that it was a white preacher also because it had fabulous music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those were all, you know, people from the congregation, okay. you know. Um, and they were allowed to do that. They were allowed to kind of take over the service from time to time, uh, and then everyone could be dancing in the aisles and exactly what you see. Um, Marjo loved doing it because he loved the music and he loved the sort of uh, uninhibitedness of that particular crowd. I bet. You know, when he so, was when he was sitting at lunch, um, just to kind of stay on the the idea of these uh, preachers, um, mm-hmm. the people running these churches, you know, when he was sitting at lunch with the, uh, the husband and wife mm-hmm. and they're kind of, and the daughter and mm-hmm. the daughter, and they're talking to him about, you know, their land that they own in Venezuela or wherever it was. And, um, mm-hmm. their so-called ministry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you think those, those people were believers themselves or were they kind of a different form of huckster? Like, like Marjo? Um, they were they were real show people. Um, I I I don't think that they were totally on the level because at one point in the movie there's a miracle where a guy is flexing his knee and he couldn't walk before oh, yeah, he had yeah. pain. Mm-hmm. He was clearly a shill, clearly. Uh, you know who who had been asked to do that. So I do suspect them, but they really did approach it as as. Um, as anyone would, uh, you know, a, a, a show. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether they were super religious, no idea. Okay. I do know that when the movie came out, they immediately co-opted it. And they were handing out flyers saying, Ray, you know, Reverend Ray and Ruby Boatwright, stars of the film Marjo, oh come, my God. <laughs> come, come to the meeting, you know. Um, their church was in L.A. Uh, so... <laughs> I don't, they didn't skip a beat, you know, Funny. they used it. <laughs> like any smart um, business person would, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. It just kind of hit. He also agreed, you know, to, he, he loved being on film. He did agree to, you know, having that lunch filmed, and we put the microphone in the, in the vase of flowers in the middle of the table, okay. um, and then shot it for, from somewhat of a distance so that they wouldn't feel self-conscious. Uh and then when they when Marjo was backstage um, counting the money oh, with him, that's one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> well, he would not have let us do that if he knew that there was sound. 
Oh. He did not know that Marjo was wearing a lavalier. Okay. You know, if if he, we were all the way at the end of the corridor, uh, and and his office door was open but not fully open, and it never occurred to him that there's such a thing as a zoom lens, <laughs> uh, and that Marjo might be wired. That is so funny. Yeah, I love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, have you stayed in touch with Marjo over the years? Oh, by or? the way, you know, uh, you know, any one of those ministers could have sued us, but they all signed releases. We released oh. everyone up oh, nice. the ass. We yeah, that's just, smart. you know, and we had announcements before, you know, every meeting. We had signs up saying, "If you do not wish to be filmed, uh, you should leave." Wow, smart, yeah. Well, we had to. I mean, our lawyer insisted. <laughs> oh, okay. And More like we, safe. we needed that safety net as well. Um, so we felt fairly safe, uh, certainly about the preachers, you know, that they would remember that they signed something. That's great. So have you kept in touch with him over the years? or? Marjo, um, you know, I only saw him personally in 2003, which was, you know, pretty, that was... Um, 12 years like, ago. 30 years, yeah, 30 years later, because uh, I was in Santa Fe uh, visiting a friend of mine who knew him uh, because he had a house in Santa Fe, and he happened to be in town, so she threw a party for me and invited him, and lo and behold, he came. Wow. <laughs> I bet that was, was strange. <laughs> it was strange, um, but it, it, he clearly had not changed much um, oh, either, uh, and I was reminded all over again why he was so difficult to deal with. Oh, um, really? And, uh, and he said something at some point that had I not known him, I would have taken great offense at. Uh, someone at the party said, oh, Marjo, Sarah made you famous. Uh, and Marjo said, I would have said it's the other way around. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was barred from the editing room. Hello. Yeah. And he, he he would actually tell people, you know, that he directed the movie. Really? Oh, wow. I think in his head he did. Well, I, you know, if this is a guy that's living his life as like a, a lie, basically, then he's probably just used to he's lying to himself. himself you know? of things. Mm, I, uh, I, no, I think, as I said, in his head, he did, because he was the one to take us to these places. He was the one to tell the cameraman what to expect. You know, we we basically directed by just turning them loose. We didn't know what the hell was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just shoot whatever happens. Um, so... We didn't really, you know, we were directors in that we were the ones interviewing him and we were the ones who, who, you know, decided what to ask him and where to stage the interview and, you know, and, and who to, else to interview. Um, and also the movie was based on my original pitch and I also did the, uh, the sort of outline, the guide for uh, cutting the movie, which is really where a movie like that is made. The the editor took a look at our ninety minutes, uh, ninety hours of footage, and he said, "There's no movie here. It's just interview and preaching." So I stayed up all night and and uh, I had watched all of that footage twice wow. uh, and transcribed every word of the interviews, and then came up with an outline showing him exactly how it was going to be organized because uh, we didn't have time. 
Mm-hmm. We had to cut that in three months. Wow. Um, all of that footage and have it ready for the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. That was our deadline, and, and our editor said this is going to take seven months. So that's why I cut the opening, was because uh, I, I knew the footage so well, and I knew what it, you know, the beats that it had to hit, uh, and I never edited anything. I didn't know how to use the equipment, so I just learned on the spot and did it. Um, Amazing. So we made it. You know, it was just like the the print of the film was practically wet from the subtitler because <laughs> it had to be <laughs> subtitled in French. Oh <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and the the editor arrived like the day before the screening. We'd already been there a week um, with, with the print. We were sweating it, man. It's but crazy. it was a huge hit there. Big hit. I bet. Because they're probably not used to that style, you know, in France. Is that is that what you're talking about? No, no. The French always really like seeing, you know, movies about the weird side of America. Oh, okay. I bet. You know, the weird, the weirder, the better. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those funny the, they, Americans. The, those French like weird things. And, yeah. and thank God there's enough weirdness here that we can provide right. them some entertainment. So the, oh, les Américains, ils sont fous. They're just all crazy. <laughs> so the film ended um, with Marjo and, and Agnes and kind of and the showed dog. their relationship <laughs> and the dog. And it, you know, him talking about quitting and stuff like that. But, but it never really showed him, like, exposing himself to somebody else and saying, you know, tell, telling somebody the truth. Did that, did that ever actually happen? Or did you guys... Um, just kind of do you mean someone, someone, uh, someone, some evangelical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, never. No, okay. Never. He knew the movie was going to do it for him, and then he would no longer be able to return to preaching. It, it was a way of forcing himself to stop. Okay. He would not be able to go back. He would be blackballed. But actually, when we thought about it later, we realized he could go back. He absolutely could go back. Yeah. You know, to say that he saw the light again. That's true. And he would have been even huger than before. Yeah, Yeah, that was one of the things I was thinking because he said he had earned, like, I don't remember how how much it was, some huge amount of money, um, maybe up to $3 million or something, but from the time he was four to 14. Seems like he could have actually made more money doing that than probably what ended up happening to his acting career. Well, you know, Marge is very clever with money. So he did not do badly. He did not do badly at all. You know, after that film, he did not have to go back. Had it had it tanked and he he was not made famous at all. Yeah, probably he would have gone back and hmm. he just worked worked it. You know, uh, he, he knew how to do that. You know, the 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 bigger the sinner, the bigger the convert, the more popular the story. Uh, you know, the more kudos for the movement. And, you know, so he would have made it work, but he didn't have to. So what did happen to him? What's he, what's he doing these days? I don't know what he, he is doing nowadays. Cause when I saw him in 2003, he said he was starting to cut back to mm-hmm. only a few events a year instead of four or five. But what he, what he became, um, kind of by some, um, serendipitous meeting with someone, I think it was in an airport, or someone who had a business uh, producing charity events uh, in kind of exotic places, 
mm-hmm. for, to which celebrities would would appear because it was uh, they were in Acapulco, you know, or in um, south of France. Or I, I don't know where they all were, but they were in uh, fun places. It would be like a celebrity golf tournament for Tourette's syndrome or something like that. I'm making mm-hmm. that up, but um, so Marjo uh, became that. Uh, and he had a production company, and he did quite big televised, you know, events. Um, and he would act as the MC, um, and he made a lot of money uh, and bought property. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had uh, four different houses when I met him. You know, in places like Sun Valley, and uh, I, I think he was building one in Mexico. He had a place in LA and New York, Santa Fe. Anyway, uh, they were all investments, but he also, you know, uh, lived in them, you know, from time to time. Uh, and anything he earned, I'm sure he put to a good use in terms of investment. Um, so he he was doing quite well, but he had a lot of health problems um, uh, to do with his back. Uh, so he was in pain a lot, and um, so he, he, he needed to cut back. And he, he had enough in the kitty to be able to do that. So I don't know to what extent um, he did. But the odd thing is that you cannot find his production company online. He's totally invisible. Yeah, I couldn't has- find anything. I was able to somehow get a hold of you, but I couldn't get a hold of him anywhere. I couldn't find him No, anywhere. his daughter, Gigi, I think is very active uh, in running his company. Um, but she's unreachable, too. He will not talk about the years before and during and just after Marjo. He will not talk about religion. Huh. He he does not want to be found by any of the press, no matter how huge they are. Uh, you know, and I I get calls like two or three a year for people trying to find him, and I you know he instructed me. He really didn't like that the movie was being re released on DVD because it had been out of print and out of you know, you, you couldn't find it um, for many years, many, mm-hmm. many years. Uh, I would say probably 15 years, unless you got an old, you know, VHS, which was very blurry anyway, because uh, nobody knew where the negative was. Psychologically uh, speaking, I just find that fascinating how he just didn't want anybody. Uh, he kind of wanted it forgotten, This the reality of his past. He There's some reason for it. Uh, and some story for it. I don't know whether he was threatened. You know, um, I, 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 I don't know, threats mm. on his life, whatever, uh, because of the movie or whatever. I, all I know is he, I, was to, I was to keep his email and address and phone number completely secret. Wow. And, and so I've done so. Well, that's, uh, you know, I can understand it to some degree. Um, you know, that's just, it's his own personal private life and I can understand him wanting to be private about it. And that's fine. Uh, one of the things we wanted to ask about you before we, before we get off the, the line here with you, I know you just had a, a movie that was released recently and I kind of wanted to ask about that and talk about oh, that. Oh, good. A Please bit. let me plug it. <laughs> yeah. So it's called Learning to Drive. What's, uh, mm-hmm. what's this about? I wrote the script for it. Uh, it's about a woman going through a terrible divorce, um, and her husband always used to do the driving. Uh, she's a New Yorker, and uh, she needs to learn to drive um, in order to go and visit her daughter, who's in Vermont. Um, 
so she takes lessons from a, a Sikh Indian from Queens. Um, that's her instructor. Mm-hmm. And he's entering uh, into an arranged marriage uh, with a woman he's never met being sent from India and chosen by his family. Uh, so it's the intersection of these two characters, one leaving a marriage and one going into one. And they both have, uh, you know, pain and problems from both, you know, both of those situations. And it's through the lessons themselves that they, they work it out. Hmm. And this is a comedy, right? Well, it's being promoted as comedy. Oh. I didn't really write it as a comedy. <laughs> uh, I just That's and, what I saw, so... Well, there's a New Yorker story by Katha Pollitt that it was based on what's not a comedy, although it had amusing portions. Mm. Neither was my script, and I don't think the director thought of it as a comedy oh, either. Okay. But somehow, in the way that Thelma Schoonmacher edited it and made it the, um, the very, you know, to my mind, successful movie that it is, uh, it seemed like the humor came to the surface and the gloomier part sort of fell away, and that's mm. how the movie worked best. And Ben Ben Kingsley is uh, in this, right? Oh God, he's perfection. Yeah, yeah, he's so wonderful. <laughs> and Patty uh, Patricia Clarkson, it's one of her first leading roles, uh, and I think in this one she really shows what she's capable of. She's going to be the toast of the town mm. if she isn't already. Uh, you know, she's a very admired supporting actress. Um, but she's 55, you know, and here's her shot, and boy, did she take it. Hmm. She's absolutely wonderful in this. How how wide of a release is this? Um... Uh, it's 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 It opened only in New York and L.A. the first oh, okay. week. Um, this past Friday, it's San Francisco, Chicago, Phoenix, and Boston, and then all the major cities. Our next Friday, and following that, it will end up in 500 theaters. So okay. it will hit the suburbs. It, they're, for the most part, not playing it in art, art cinemas because even though you know it's a very low budget, very modest you know movie that is not heavy in guns and explosions, <laughs> it's a, um, they do see it as a popular movie. Um, so it's playing, you know, it's in multiplexes. Uh, That's great. Well, we'll be looking um, for it up here in Portland. Good, good. Uh, I think just in a couple of weeks you'll be able to enjoy it. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on the uh, podcast with us today. It's been an honor and a, a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about Marjo and and the documentary. Um, and you know, congratulations on all of your successes. I know you've not, Marjo wasn't the only Academy Award you've you've won. Um, you also produced the film Thoth. Um, people should look that up. Very interesting, also. It's uh, on YouTube. Yeah. So thank you very much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure, and thanks for being interested in a very old movie. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorite okay. things in the world. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Bye bye. Bye. Coming soon to Vast.Church. The Vast Codex, the testament to end all testaments, the book to end all books. The Vast Codex will come alive episode by episode in the all-new Vast Codex podcast, featuring me, Jerry Esteban, also known as The Oracle, coming soon to Vast.Church. Thank you for listening to the Evil Twin Podcast. 
To get the full Evil Twin experience, go to eviltwinpodcast.com and follow the guys on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Evil Twin Podcast. If you really want to show your support, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes. And remember, first of all, I'm going to. 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 I'm going to.